Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Vincast. My name is James Kessbrook, also known as the Intrepid Wino, and we're back for our second episode of 2014. Um, and just wanted to put in a couple of quick plugs. Um, firstly, I've now actually put up the, uh, the show, as well as um, being able to listen to it uh, on the blog and also through iTunes. You can actually listen to the show on Stitcher, um, which is an app you can uh, download to uh, your computer or to uh, an iOS device or an, an Android device, uh, and um, and you can listen to it that way, uh, which is really great because um, in all of those cases, um, you can share it, you can make comment, that kind of thing, which uh, obviously uh, I'm hoping you guys will do a little bit of um, to um, just to share what you thought of the show. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk about is um, the Rootstock Sydney Festival, which is happening in a few weeks uh, over the, on the 8th and 9th of February. Um, and that is basically a festival designed uh, mostly around wine, but uh, there'll also be uh, some other um, artisan producers of... Uh, beverages like sake and and also some food uh, that'll be involved but essentially it's designed around sustainable products sustainable wines uh, with quite a heavy focus on natural wines so uh, i'm going to be heading up for that and which should be lots and lots of fun and uh, i do encourage you uh, if you're sydney based or if you're not you can make it there i do suggest looking into it because it should be a fantastic event it's the second time they've run it and uh, by all accounts last year's was uh pretty amazing and this year's should be even better so uh today on the podcast i've actually invited um a fellow by the name of andrew marks uh andrew's parents uh, actually established one of the more uh, cult wineries in the yarra valley region uh not far out of melbourne uh and he sort of followed them into um the the wine industry uh and is uh doing some really exciting things um both with wine and with uh, another product which uh, we'll come back to a bit later in the episode but um uh, i've invited him to chat and thank you for joining us today andrew no worries james thanks for having me here it's it's great to be here um so essentially something i try uh, I, I like to ask people just to start off with is um what was the first interaction you had with wine in particular that kind of made you sit up and, and really take notice uh, uh obviously with um your parents having the winery i probably would have been a bit earlier on yeah it's been a, a lifelong involvement really um and it's hard to pinpoint any one moment but um my well, the folks established our, our vineyard in 1983, so we really celebrated 30 years of um, since it's been established last year. Wow, fantastic! So, I've been around it all my life, but we used to live in um, eastern Melbourne, and I, I certainly recommend re- recollect the um, long lunches and dinners that my folks used to have. And <laughs> they were they used to hang around their their mates were the sort of the the um, John Middletons and the Peter McMahons and the Reg Egans, so right. who you know Mount Mary Civil Estate and part Mount of that sort of rebirth of the Yarra Valley wine region. Yeah, they were really the sort of the forefathers of the the modern um, the modern Yarra Valley, along with Bailey Carris and a few other characters. That um, so that that was they were the people that they used to hang around with these these characters. And was was it through them that they got introduced to wine? Yeah, or? I, th- okay. I think so. I think they've always had you know interested in, in fine food and and the finer things in life. Sure. And um and so somehow they 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 found themselves in that sort of circle of friends. And so we used to go and pick grapes and all that sorts of things out at oh wow out at um at all, all those three vineyards as as um, well my folks certainly did and we used to get dragged along as kids from time to time. So okay, yeah, it goes back a long way. And and the, what why what sort of drew them to that the particular site because it's in. Um, still a reasonably undiscovered or unknown corner of the Yarra Valley region, which of course is is quite big. Yeah. Um, I, I remember actually last year I uh, went along to a, a tasting that you and uh, and Tim Mayer held for Sommeliers Australia and sort of talked about there the fact that there are so many different sort of sub regions within the Yarra Valley and and even though that kind of area that Jimbrook Hill is in um, is classified as Upper Yarra, that's sort of still kind of a, a really, it's a bit of a generalisation. Yeah, it is. It certainly is. I mean, how we came to be there is, you know, quite an interesting story. And I guess I could be championing Mornington Peninsula or, or Geelong or uh, the sort of Gisborne area as well, given that 
my folks spent five years um, driving around the sort of the dress circle of Melbourne. So yeah. they basically wanted a spot to retire to or to live out their days and um okay they wanted to, they wanted it to be within an hour of melbourne uh-huh and so we just spent, and there's plenty of options really there are plenty of options so like all those different regions so we spent um you know all our weekends in the car and back in the very early 80s wow driving around um with the kids asking for ice creams and all there yet sort of scenario and um and eventually in, in 83 they came across this site that they weren't um it was, they just happened to see it on the on the door of the um real estate agency in emerald a sign and they they went out there that that afternoon and they sort of could hardly be bothered but they just went out there and checked it out and as soon as they they jumped the fence because they didn't have a key they realized that they they liked the place wow okay it's just a, a beautiful spot it was just a, a vacant um cow paddock essentially with you know overgrown with weeds and um yeah it was a cleared block of land and uh with the northeasterly aspect is it it's actually a lovely little natural amphitheater sure um, but you know, in terms of grapes in that area, there weren't any at that stage. So, did they, they did they were they particularly looking for a, a cool climate sort of site, or was oh, that not necessarily a factor? I think I think more more importantly, they were that might have been a factor, but more importantly, they were looking for something with a great view, sure. so somewhere to live. <laughs> okay, um, a northeasterly aspect I think was pretty important in for growing grapes. And I think that's turned out to be a pretty good decision. Um, and you know the rest is probably a little bit of luck in in some respects, and they've they've certainly pioneered that part of the um the grape growing world of the Yarra Valley for sure. sure. Mm. But, I mean that's sort of um uh let's say you know a hobby farm kind of yeah um setup back in the eighties. Well, yeah. you know there were quite a few sort of places being set up, particularly in the Yarra Valley and yeah. Mornington. So yeah. so that was, is that kind of what you would classify as that second wave. Yeah, I think so. I mean, there are a number of thirty-year-old vineyards in the Yarra Valley, and and, sure. and, and, and older. Um, there's quite a few people who've you know been farming and growing grapes for for the long haul in the Yarra. But um, yeah, I think we'd certainly be part of that sort of second wave. And you know, there's probably since been then there's been a, th- a third and fourth wave really. In the yeah, absolutely. On, which, which has been made it really exciting. Um, but yeah, definitely. What uh, in terms of um, decisions about you know what varieties to plant what what kind of um inspiration did they take did they kind of uh collaborate with anyone talk to some of the other people in the Yarra Valley particularly considering that area was um and still is sort of underplanted yeah well, I mean we certainly did uh dad did consult with a few people and it wasn't unknown so but you know without anyone else growing grapes up there it was a bit of a it was a bit of a leap of faith i guess yeah um and i, I think he, he had a conversation with reg egan from one turn reg egan from one turner estate and he uh-huh. said, oh, you know it's a cool high rainfall spot um plant sauvignon blanc okay and I've, I've got these memories in 85 and we so we planted that was the first variety we planted i remember in, in 1985 when the first vintage of um cloudy bay came out and oh yeah, it's just like this thing of wonder and excitement because yeah. you know, everyone was discovering this this you know crazy wine from New Zealand, which really set the foundations for modern Sauvignon Blanc. But um, yeah, so the 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 um the market for Sauvignon Blanc was significantly different back then to what it is today. Well, yeah, it's probably in a state of <laughs> flux at the moment, given what happened to New Zealand on the basis of um of uh, Cloudy Bay. It's a bit like the back of the sheep, really. Um, it's uh it's done really well, and then it's sort of in that classic sort of rural cycle we've sort of they've overexploited something and overplanted and yeah. oversupplied and and people are now sick of New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc in, in a larger measure. Well it's interesting um in terms of Sauvignon Blanc because of the huge increase in demand for Sauvignon Blanc um in Australia yeah. largely coming from New Zealand um and there being sort of a few regions I guess most notably the Adelaide Hills that were planted and planted and planted with the Sauvignon Blanc. Even with, um, I, I mean, I've had long had the opinion that the Jembrook Hill Sauvignon Blanc is the best Sauvignon Blanc in Australia, um, that there wasn't as much sort of Sauvignon Blanc then planted, considering mm. the, the, the huge increase in demand. Yeah, well, there's a, I mean, there is a lot in Margaret River, and sure. that's probably through their association with Kate, uh, Kate Mantell as, and um, yeah. Cardi Bay as, as, as much as anything. Yeah. And, um, you know, they're well-known for their Sav Simeons. Um, it's one of those varieties where, in some respects, it can be hard to be taken seriously at times. Like, mm-hmm. you know, and people get a bit, you know, it wasn't that long ago that there were anything but Chardonnay, you know, clubs or, you know, people sprouting that sort of thing. Whereas I think Chardonnay's come back in a massive way. Yep. It's a certainly faddish to a certain extent, but also um, when things get sort of 
you know, there's the case of oversupply and people, you know, a market gets flooded and, mm-hmm. and, and, Absolutely. Then, and there's an, a matter of oversupply and then prices come down and overinvestment. Yeah. And people get a bit, bit, bit sick of it because there's so much about. So I think it's, it, well, that sort of did happen with Chardonnay to a certain extent well, back in the, this is the true. 90s. It's refound itself a little bit. I mean, in some respect, it's sort of, um, you know, if you stick to your guns and you, your intention right from the get go is to make a quality product, then, sure. then you should, you can write out a lot of fads and trends and, you know, it was style over, over, um, fashion and mm-hmm. you know, matter over substance, I guess. So, but, yeah. it, but even then, um, when, when the vineyards were first being planted, yep. you're sort of looking at Chardonnay and Pinot Noir as well. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, the, the classic, um, cool climate burgundy varietals, I guess. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, the conundrum of modern Australian viticulture is that, you know, in, in the Yarra Valley is a great exponent of this is that if you go to certain vineyards in the Yarra Valley, they will say, we make great Cabernet. And then you'll go to the next one and they'll say, well, we make great Sauvignon Blanc. Yeah, exactly. So we'll say we make great Shiraz or Syrah and some sure, sure. great Pinot and Chardonnay. It's like, how can that be? You know, in such a small area, people are spouse. And there are, you know, for all those different examples, there are great producers of those wines in the Yarra, for example. Mm-hmm. And then you obviously have the, 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 the situation of, of, trying to define a style like a Yarra Valley Pinot Noir style there is yep. almost no such thing because as you say it's so it, particularly with something like Pinot Noir and Chardonnay it is a lot more site specific absolutely I mean for me it's sort of my approach a little bit and my take on that sort of a you know that line of thinking is um go to a, a region that you don't know particularly well say Burgundy mm-hmm. um and it, for me, as a, um, a guy who doesn't live in Burgundy, trying to understand that region and, you know, um, drink sure. those wines, you basically, you can spend a lot of good money on bad wines. So mm. essentially after a, a long time of spending good money on bad on bad wines or after a short period of time, depending on how patient you are, you start focusing on the producers that you like. Exactly. And you start to get an, understand, an understanding of, of how they perform. And, and typically the producers that you like are consistent, can produce consistent quality and, and there's a reason why they're good and there's a whole heap of different reasons, um, you know, their knowledge in the vineyard and the way that they put things together in the winery sure. and their philosophy and, and their stability, I guess. And Because because even then, you know, there's no such thing as a a great region or there's no such thing as a great vintage. It's more about the producer who who probably will express the vintage better, Mm. um, but quality wise, it will be more consistent. I remember working Mm. as a uh, as a buyer when I was at King Godfrey Mm. and being very inexperienced in Italian wine and and sort of trying to understand, particularly with the sort of stuff like Barolo and. Uh, and um, and you know Super Tuscan that kind of thing um, and uh, a really good um, account manager that we had from Chambuff and Taylor Matt Paul sort of said what you're better off doing if you're sort of looking at getting stuff for the seller is actually finding the better producers who are going to um, consistently um, make great wine just be a little bit different from year to year rather than sort of going, oh, this is a vintage year, though. this is a great, a better year with the producers who are less consistent. Mm. So, I mean, the same applies from, from Bolarolo to Burgundy to the Yarra Valley or to anywhere sure. in Australia, really. You, you you find a style that you like and, you, you, I mean, that's that's my approach, you know. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, that bears bears out, you know, the, the people that rise to the top of the people who are consistently making good booze year in, year out. Stylistically, um, what was the, the inspiration early on for your parents in terms of what kind of wines they wanted to make? Oh, I think in that respect, the the site is really the main determinant. Where we okay, so we um, it's very minimally handled in the winery, sure. Um, which is you know it gets bandied about a lot these days, but really it's the, the expression of the vineyard. So, I mean, as a winemaker now, looking back, I'm very lucky that my folks set out with the intention of you know, making nice wine. Sure. Um, and that meant that they were, they would go the hard yards in the vineyard and they wouldn't chase big crops and they, you know, they wouldn't overcrop the vineyard and they wouldn't. And they weren't following trends for big wines and yeah, exactly. heavily oaked wines, particularly in terms yep. of Chardonnay, which obviously was Absolutely. The, one of the main reasons why they, um, there was a, a turn away from Chardonnay yep. because they tended to be so heavily worked in terms of malolactic and, yep. and new oak and stuff like that. Well, our site is, it's, it's an interesting site. It's, it's the southernmost vineyard in the Yarra Valley. It's planted on red soils. Uh-huh. The vines aren't irrigated. And it's a very fertile site. So the style of wines or the, that um, our vineyard produces are, are pretty much very um, very aromatic mm-hmm. and, and lighter in style. Mm-hmm. For example, we never have a lot of colour in our Pinot Noir, but um, 
you know, I think it's it's probably well recognised that you, you can chase colour at, at the peril of all the other flavour components and aromatics of, yeah. of a Pinot. Like, so that's not really Pinot. The colour in Pinot is not a determinant of the of the, of the quality of a wine. Well, I've, I've recently been reading um, Alice Firing's books, and and she talked about sort of visiting wineries and winemakers who do stuff like putting in enzymes to actually extract more colour, which is mm. you know. It's, okay yeah Mm. unfortunately um there is an association with color you know a darker particularly with red wine uh, the darker the color the sort of the higher quality Mm. of the wine which is it's a little bit silly Mm. when you think about it well that's right i mean we we try and it's funny like you can make the biggest impacts to a a wine really in the vineyard Mm -hmm. so if we're really going to chase color we're more likely to, to try and open up the canopy and um, at specific times of the year mm-hmm. to get better colour. And that's sort of, we're, you know, we're in late January now and we're getting to the point where the grapes are about to start going through Veraison. And, and um, after that time, you know, if we get, if there's a little bit of exposure of sunlight to the grapes, that will actually improve their colour in the Pinot Noir. Sure. So, you know, we typically leaf pluck, for example, which is actually just going through by hand and and selectively take it. Uh, it's, a, it's a long process, selectively taking out handfuls of leaves from the morning side earlier on in the season so that might happen in sort of november december or maybe december yeah just open up the canopy get airflow through um and we do that on the morning side which means that the morning sun side so it doesn't get it's not as hot yeah it doesn't get as hot or exposed but we might do the same process just lightly to get dappled light into the touching the grapes which actually builds the potential um red color pigments in the grapes yeah. so you know you're better off doing that from my book than dabbling with Wine making tools that are pretty plentiful and you know available on the market these days. Well, I've I've always maintained you can't fix a wine in the cellar. Mm. You actually anything you do or mm-hmm. theoretically is intervening with it, and so it's really about trying to capture as best as you can what the yeah. site and what the vintage is providing you. Oh, particularly in in small sort of boutique scenarios such as we are. I mean, in a larger sort of scale where. Yeah, which is a completely valid part of the market where of we're making large wines and you know don't have the benefit of just a particular vineyard but have to to make blends and mm-hmm. you know, with large volumes and there's a few more tricks involved or games involved but that's just that's just part of the, the the craft i guess but we're quite lucky just to be producing small quantities of um of really single vineyard wines straight from the, the you know the vineyard to the to the barrel to the bottle it's pretty cool so when did jembrook hill start to kind of get a bit of acclaim and start to have a kind of a cult following well i don't i the funny thing with jembrook is that you know i'm sure a lot of producers who have been in the game for a long time knows that you know my my mum used to be the um the marketing (laughs) manager or salesperson which basically meant that she'd lug around um, bottles of wine and, and case of wine in the back of the old Peugeot 504 and you know go and visit the, the restaurants and in, and in those days as my folks tell me and I you know obviously wasn't visiting the restaurants as in in the late 80s and early 90s so much but um the restaurant scene wasn't nearly half as vibrant or you know as it is today so there were essentially in, in Melbourne in Melbourne yeah I mean yeah. The, the whole food scene has changed as, as and the wine scene has changed with it but in those days if you were essentially in one of the the better restaurants in Melbourne, if your wines were listed there, then chances were that you'd get listings reasonably easily sure. in the other restaurants. And sure. It was as simple as that just because there weren't a lot of producers of wine in those days. And so, mm-hmm. um, with a, you know, with a, I mean, wine is, the wine industry is very much a relationship business mm-hmm. um, from, you know, growing the grapes to you know, your relationship with, you know, even with the vineyard to, to your relationships with the people that you're then selling it to. Mm-hmm. And and everywhere in between, it's that's that's one of the beauties of the industry mm-hmm. and developing relationships. And you know, you you develop relationships with um, you know people all their careers down the track. And you know, today's do you so, generally find that people are pretty loyal? Oh, you know, absolutely. With, with yeah, a strong relationship, people sort of yeah. I mean, stick with you with with small businesses. You can really you know you can have that personal relationship that I think a lot of wine buyers in particular seminars are really looking for that mm-hmm. they want sort of like a connection. They want to be able to come up to the vineyard and understand it, you know, and have a, a, just a, a working lunch with us and, you know, and just have a chat, nothing to, um, to and to feel that like personal that. connection. Yeah, absolutely. And just walk through the place and see, see what it's like, and then they can take that experience back to their customers. Sure. And, um, and it, it, it brings a lot to the experience that they're able to, um, sell when they're selling a wine and, to have stories essentially absolutely i think that's that's very important um uh-huh. and that's one of the things that we can do really well as small businesses so when when did you get involved 
with with the sort of the business? Oh, I'm, I've been pretty late to um, the business. So I I left. I went straight from high school to um, wine making school. Where did you study? In um, Roseworthy. Okay, so over in went, South Australia. Yeah, in South Australia. So in those days, there were only two. Um, places to study there was Wagga Wagga or Adelaide. Wagga Wagga, obviously, was Charles Charles Uni, yep. And uh, I, I sort of chose the lifestyle less, lesser of two evils as far as I was concerned to go and live in Adelaide. Yeah. Which was then a, uh, it was a four-year degree all the same. So okay. it was in a position where it was um, transitioning from Roseworthy back to the Adelaide University campus. And you, and you sort of were, were happy, you were enthusiastic about sort of going into the wine business, so there wasn't sort of a, ever a, you didn't feel like a, there was an expectation that you were going to take it on? Oh, to be honest, I think I was pretty clear. I think, you know, you can gild the lily a little bit looking back with, with some time, but I had spent a, a year on exchange in France when I was 16. Really? Yep, and, and six months of that time was spent living on a vineyard in Bordeaux. Wow, okay. In one of the satellite um, regions called Cote de Castillon, uh-huh. which is just the next um, Appalachian along from um, Saint-Emilion. And I just looked at this, these people's lives and I, I thought it was a pretty cool way that they were living. Like, Very charmed. Yeah, I was charmed. It was a good lifestyle and, you know, good fun. and Good that, food too. Good food, yeah, all of the above. And it really appealed to me. And I could see that I wasn't exactly sure, you know, what I wanted to do with, with my education. Um and it seemed like a pretty good mix of, you know, office work and outdoor work and, and all that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, I, I was pretty happy to go and, and do that. So, I mean, there's always been, you know, a question mark about, you know, what you're doing when you're young. Mm. But um, looking back, it's been a pretty exciting career choice and it's been very rewarding and fulfilling. Do you have any um, any brothers or sisters? Yeah, I've got two sisters and neither of them are in, related in the industry. So. What, what do they end up doing? Oh, well, my older sister is a um, composer. Oh, wow. So she does um, com- compositions for um, music, composition for um, television and film. Uh-huh. Um, and she's, Score, scores. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And she's also done some um, plays and, and she's done an opera and written opera and stuff. Cool. And my young sister until recently was um, uh, worked for Film Victoria and her job was to attract investment in in um you know overseas productions uh-huh. using victoria as a um a backdrop as a, as a set for for films for yeah. production so did she meet nicholas cage oh, i think she was involved with that film coming to australia okay. i don't know whether she she met <laughs> mr cage his finest work was in um in that film that was out recently his name is i can't remember right now um yeah uh, I can't remember the name of the film, but uh, yeah. Obviously, his uh, his acclaimed is legendary. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's his finest role to date. I think Kickass. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, no, she's she's yeah. So that was her job. So and she's recently taken her dance and just been a, a lady of leisure. Lovely for a while. Yeah. It's 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 interesting though that sort of all three of you kind of were involved in a way in, in some sort of creativity. Yeah. Um, you know, I guess in a way you sort of with the winemaking and the yeah. musical composition, you just sort yeah. of looking at the raw material and kind of crafting it, it into an expression that uh, you know and, and trying to find a way that um, to convey that yeah, to certainly. an audience mm. um that's that's really fascinating um and so when you went away and studied and what did you do after that oh, I, I um took up a role with um a big wine business back in the day called south corp yep wines that was, it was the owner of penfolds and lindemans and winds and um but, but then obviously bought Coldstream Hills in the Yarra Valley. It, it already owned Coldstream in, oh, okay. back in those days. Right. Um, so, yeah, you owned a number of um, and Devil's Lair in West Australia. So it was a massive brand, um, mm. business. And that was a really great opportunity. And, and those those years, that was 98 when I graduated, that was sort of like the, the high watermark of the Australian yeah. wine industry in recent times, really, where you know exports were booming. Minus and, touch. Yeah, and people were um, planting vineyards and... It was, a, it was a golden pathway, but ever since those times, it's really been on, you know, for the large companies in particular, it's been on a bit of a downward trend. Mm-hmm. Um, and the year after, so they actually had a graduate program back in those days, which I embarked on for two years. Yep. And I worked at four of their major sites for six months each. And then I, In which regions? I worked, uh, my first vintage was in uh, Sebbles, Great Western. Oh, cool. For six months for vintage 1998. Bit of history there. Yeah, it's an amazing place. I, I loved it and, and really terrific wines and, and great people. Yeah. Um, which was a trend all, all over Australia where I worked. There was um, cool. 
there was then I went to Lindemans, uh-huh. which is based in Mildura, at uh-huh. a site called Caradoc, which is a pretty large winery. Sure. Um, making making big blends like the largest tanks there are something like one half million liters. Yeah. Um, big. And then from there I went to Coonawarra in '99 to do vintage at Rougeon and, and at Wins. Oh wow. And then I, spent, I finished off the six months, the last six months at Neuropa uh, in the Penfolds mothership in uh-huh. the Barossa Valley. Cool. And so that was great. And you you know there's a lot of great winemakers who are sort of you know within the large company structures you know who never really see the light of day but they're they're consummate professionals and really understand that you know what's going on very well mm-hmm. with wine and it was a great place to learn a lot about winemaking and then after that you sort of came well i, I stayed with um penfolds for another four years after that uh-huh. and um was a winemaker at penfolds in the white department and then i finished off with the last year there in back to great western yeah in 2003 was my last vintage and from that point, I sort of that was six years, and I thought I needed to spread my wings and travel a bit. So I, I, I did a few vintages, um, one in in uh, Western Australia in Denmark, mm-hmm. and then following that, I went to Spain and um, really, yeah, worked in Spain. I'd, I'd already done a vintage when I was overseas in two thousand in America and two thousand two in France. Um, and yeah, so Spain two thousand four, and that was great fun. Sure. Uh, and and sort of what, I guess I'm interested to know what kind of set you on the path to obviously be involved with, with Genbrook, but then to establish your own um, kind right. of project as well. Well, I guess, uh, I think, I mean, coming from our family vineyard and, you know, and then going to this massive machine that was South Coast was always very interesting to me because, as I said, I was quite lucky that my folks sort of, are, you know, are perfectionists. So they set off and they, they plant this beautiful vineyard. They... It's not that they. It wasn't the fact that they expend expense. So they don't expend lavishly or unwisely. But the expense was just time and hard work. Exactly, and and um, and a view to detail, which was all important. Yeah. Um, and so to go into the big coming, then to sort of like try and see how it all fit fitted together, mm-hmm. uh, was was very was really curious. But I sort of always had it in the back of my mind that I'd be heading back to Jembrook. I don't sure. think there was any question of that. And it was part of a, you know, a pretty fun, something I've been involved with right from the get-go that, you know, appealed to me. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I think I was needed to go out and get as much experience as possible from a lot of different parts of the uh, the world. So that was good. And speaking... speaking did, did it sort of contribute to kind of getting a, a much deeper appreciation for, for Genbrook and for home? Um, oh, I think so. Yeah, in respect to... Um, I think from an early point, Jembrook has always produced wines that are quite distinct and with, you know, that have always sort of stood aside and, and had a lot of character and flavour that really speak of where they are. Yeah. And, you know, we, the, we bandy around the term terroir wines quite readily these days, but really there's a flavour profile that, you know, you can try Jembrook Pinot in a lineup and, and you can recognise it for sure. what it is. So sure. it stands out quite, quite well. Um, so with that in mind, it, to my mind, that makes it quite a special place. And I think, you know, you know, there's also an emotional attachment. And when it, when there's these sorts of things, it makes it hard to sort of separate these things out and be clinical about them. And sometimes I don't really even want to. So, <laughs> you know, sometimes the, it's just not really necessary. But um, I think uh, in that respect, yeah, very lucky, very lucky to to have that that you know I wouldn't be who I was if I didn't have the folks that I have obviously yeah you were talking about that you know that my sisters have a creative bent in them as well well that's clearly coming through from the parents and I think you know they've they've got great values and everything they do you know their personal relationship like we talked before and, and just if you know if they do something they do it properly mm. I think I've taken that one on uh yeah strongly too so um I always have it I had a strong belief in the idea of general just just because I, you know, I know the work that's gone into it and, and the site that it is and uh, the, the way that we go about things. So, you know, and, you, you and could have been unlucky. It could have been a, a shit site, but clearly, you know, I think they, they chose well and they, they didn't hurry the decision to, to make the decision as to where they planted that vineyard. They spent five years looking. I could, mm-hmm. You know, had it been a different site, I could have been celebrating Mornington Peninsula wines and pushing them. Sure. Rather than, yeah, really just, that's just the luck of the draw. Um, and, and I suppose in, t- in terms of Jebrook Hill, did you kind of feel it was more like a custodial position, just continuing uh, the tradition? Yeah, I do a little bit. I mean, that, that's a really curious one, and, you, and you've got to be careful, you know, it's certainly coming in. And 
in, in fact, my folks um, built the winery there in 2000. So they'd already been operating for a number of years with, without a winery. Right. And the wine was, was made off site for them. But 2000, um, they had the winery built and, and um, they've employed a winemaker continuously at, at Gembrook since 2000. Sure. So, and, um, and that has been Timo? Yeah, so that's Timo. Since then? Yeah, yeah. So he's been there for now 13 years. Okay. And so, you know, you sort of can't come back as the prodigal son and just, you know, upset the apple cart, really. And yeah. And that's not really the way that we go about doing things. Sure. As, uh, as a family, I guess. So, yeah, so I've been back in 2005 and, and sort of working with Timo since then and my father and, and just finding find the way for that relationship to work. And, mm-hmm. and part of that was clearly that... I felt I needed a project on the side just to to get you know my own project off the ground and okay. complete expression of what I was doing after you know the lessons I learned being a winemaker. For how did you um, come upon the name the Wanderer? Oh, I spent a lot of time uh, working out trying to figure out what it was I was trying to express. But you know I make a small quantity of wine. It's it's a pretty small um, brand or label, and I just wanted to. So it's very personal, obviously, mm-hmm. and so I guess. With that name, I could have called it, you know, Andrew Marks Wines, which is, you know, it's it's what a lot of people do. But I wanted it to be um, not really all about me and to convey something of that that thrill of excitement or mm-hmm. the uh, sense of spirit of adventure that mm-hmm. I've always um, cherished and, and it's, you know, led me on a lot of fun adventures in my life. And I think a lot of people, you know, go traveling or, can, you know, even if, you know, you can be an arm, armchair traveler like, you know, like a lot of people and, and mm-hmm. go on journeys. But... You know, that sort of sense is what I was trying to convey with the Wanderer. Well, it's, you know? it's funny because uh, it's kind of the same reason why I gave myself the moniker of the Intrepid Wino. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's 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 a thing that I think a lot of people can relate to. And, mm-hmm. and so that's cool. And, and you can interpret, you know, as and how you will. And I think that's important too. Like with everything I do, I, I try not to... Um, put a marketing slant on things and say, you're going to like this because of this, this, and this. Yeah. I prefer you to drive my wine and say, well, I do like this because mm-hmm. of this and this. Mm-hmm. And I prefer the product to speak for itself rather than me to have to put some sort of slant on things. And initially it was just, you know, Yarra Valley Expressions? Yeah, it was. Well, my first 2005 wines, they were classic. I should have brought a sample in to show you today. But um, uh, I made three very unusual wines. and. Mm-hmm. By the time I, I did vintage in 2005, I already knew that I'd been employed for the latter half of 2005 for six months to work vintage in Spain, mm-hmm. uh, heading up my friend's winery in Catalonia. And so I knew I wouldn't be able to make a red wine because I wouldn't be able to look after it in the cellar the way I would want to. Sure. So I, I, I made a uh, Gewurz Tremina Chardonnay field blend, fantastic wine. Wow. I made a, from the same vineyard. I made a, picked on the same day, I made a, from the same vineyard, I made a Pinot Noir Chardonnay Rosé. Uh-huh. And I also made a Moscato because I just, I just wanted to have fun with wine. <laughs> okay. And they, they're pretty eclectic bunch. And, well, certainly um, it fits in with the, the, the wander or the kind of... Absolutely. Like that kind of discovery, experimentation kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, completely. And as it turns out... sense of freedom. <laughs> yeah, look, the wines were spot on. Like they were, they were really, I thought, spot on and... and you know, this comes back into the whole trends and fads in wine. Like, yeah. um, we, I did a comparative tastings of my Moscato, for example, to, um, to taste it comparatively against all the other Australian offerings. And, uh-huh. and I traveled in 2005 to Piedmonte and visited a number of the great Moscato producers and, and you know, yeah, and I had some great conversations with them and sure. it was fantastic. And, um, and then to make that wine, which is actually the most technically difficult wine I've ever had to make. Okay. And I made it for three consecutive vintages and made it differently each year mm-hmm. with, with good results each year, but still trying to figure out the best way of going about it. Sure. But in 2005, when I did that comparative tasting, there were nine Moscatos in Australia. Oh, no, and then, no, there's significantly yeah. more than that. So two years later, there was something like 60 or something. It was just mad, mm. ridiculous. And, you know, it has been said to me before that sometimes it's best not to be a market leader. Sometimes it's best to come in on the coattails of what is already a strong market, but do it better than other people. Okay. You know, if you know what I mean, um, because you don't have the resources in terms of money and um, to, yeah, the, to, the, to push it. Yeah, the product. market's been set up for you. And so, yeah. I guess at the same time, you know, you might be coming in at a point where consumers are sort of a bit almost okay with, with the yeah. ones kind of go, 
Oh, and then you come along and you can make it even better and kind of exactly. go, oh, this is a much better expression of what exactly. it is. Exactly. But having said that, I've never really listened to that sort of, <laughs> that sort of research or common sense. And I've just gone and, and done what I really wanted to do. And um, yeah, they were fun wines. I, I was saying to a friend of mine quite recently that, you know, those, those cookie blends of Pinot Chardonnay Field blend, and they were actually really reasonably priced. Mm-hmm. And they were they had a cookie label it was the wanderer but the label design wasn't spot on and i knew it wasn't spot on sure but i sort of compromised my position i'm sure my brother-in-law won't hear this but i, I had him design the label for me and, and then i didn't have the heart to tell him that i didn't like it okay so i ran with it which was probably the wrong thing to do and then i yeah. changed it the following year for sure. the 2006 release of the wanderer wines but um <laughs> um so that was a good lesson in business learned there you know yeah uh, pay for the job so that you can really tell people what you want rather than sort of get something that you don't really want <laughs> and don't find yourself in that sort of funny position. Sure. But, um, you know, the market has changed these days such that it's actually come full circle. So if I was to release those three wines now, the market would be, would be so ready for them embracing them because everyone's yeah. looking for these quirky, unusual blends that have got a bit of a funny take on things and something a bit different in those days. And that's only going back to 2005. So yeah. eight, eight, nine years ago, like yeah. people weren't ready for them. They didn't know how to take it. Uh-huh. So it's really curious. And the, and the price, people told me, put your price up and change your label. And these days the price, because of what's been happening in the economy and the marketplace and, and the, there's so many wines from overseas that are competing with our wines. Mm. The price point that I actually released those at was actually would probably be suitable to what they are now. Sure. You know, so it's, it's very curious what's been happening in the industry. But um, eventually sort of the wines that you were making under the Wanderer label yep. became um, focused a little bit more on Pinot Noir yes. um, in the Yarra Valley. And more recently, I think you've been doing slightly some newer things like Chenin Blanc. Yes. Well, there's a story behind every wine, and initially I started off making Shiraz from the Yarra Valley, and um, and I just and the reason for that was I didn't want to be in direct competition with Gembrook. Uh huh. But then it, it sort of it dawned on me. Well, look, there's enough differences between the the regions within the Yarra Valley, yeah, such that even if I was to be making wine, I wouldn't be in direct competition with Gembrook. Sure. Because they they'd have a different flavour profile. So, and you know. My first red was 06, and by that stage I'd made the decision that I wasn't going to take a full-time job in Spain, which I'd been offered, which was sort of like that sort of one of those many crossroads that you... That, tough decision. That you get offered. Yeah, that's very true. It was a tough decision. Life in Spain would be pretty uh, well, pretty interesting. Pretty oh, fun. I love Spain, and I've got great friends there, and I love visiting them every year. Mm. But um, I, think, uh, I think a lot of people can get to the point in their life where they've worked for other people, and they say, it's time for me to do my own thing. Well, to a certain extent, you have you kind of have best of both worlds because you also are making a wine uh, out of Catalonia, mm. um, El Wanderer. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, how, how did you sort of get the idea to to, to make uh, a wine in Spain? Oh, well, just it's just very simply through relationships and and um, cool. And so I did this vintage in Sonoma in two thousand. Okay. And I was the Australian stagiaire, and the other stagiaire was from Catalonia, who happened to be Anna Spelt, who's you know now one of my best mates. Uh-huh. And we spent ten weeks, you know, um, living together, and we just became very good friends. Sure. And you know, we had this little tiny um, pickup truck that we used to drive around, and and so by dint of long period of time together, we just became great friends. Uh-huh. And so when I was back in um, France, working in France in two thousand two for vintage, I just ducked across the border because the where they are in, on the Mediterranean coast in Catalonia is very close to where I was in Narbon. I went oh, to Cedillo cool. and, and we just renewed our friendship. And um, and so I, I hit her up for a, a vintage job in 2004 in her cellar uh-huh. and worked there. And it was just, it was, it's an amazing part of the world where they're situated. Sure. And, um, and her family winery and they, they had a lot of potential for um, on the upside mm-hmm. of what they could do. Mm-hmm. And um, I think with my sort of background through penfolds and from exposure to a lot of different winemaking techniques and and, um, and modern winemaking in many respects without being, you know, disrespectful to them, I, I was able to help them transition in, in that towards a sort of realising that the um, ups, upside of what they could do. Mm. And, you know, these days they're just smashing out some fantastic booze, mm. um, which I was, you know, there at the start of that, that journey. As, I mean, they're, they're a young 
sort of winery in many respects, but they've got, you know, they own 100-year-old vineyards and things mm, like this. Mm, mm. So, you know, what they're doing and able to do is, is just very exciting. I, I love going to see what they're doing every year. And mm. I get blown away by their, their various achievements year in, year out. They're, they're great. Mm. And, and and that relationship, yeah, making the old one room started in 2008 and I, I just uh, made some some wine from uh, a few of their 100-year-old vineyards, single vineyard wines. Wow. And selected the wine that I, I liked the best out of those parcels that they were able to let me have, and um, and that was the the genesis of El Wanderer. So, well, it's a, a pretty nice excuse to head over to Spain every year. Oh, it's fantastic! Particularly, you know, hitting up in the, some of the tapas bars in Barcelona. Yeah, oh, we have a lot of fun, and you know, <laughs> I sort of they don't get excited to see me anymore. It's just like, oh, here's Andrew; he can <laughs> he can babysit the kids. You know, it's quite, <laughs> it's pretty cool. Okay. Yeah. Oh. Um, but a more recent project um, has um, certainly exploded on the Melbourne bar scene, mm. and that is actually um, something a bit different, Melbourne Gin Company. Tell me what kind of gave you the idea to start uh, distilling your own gin. Uh, well, it's just a continuation of um, the love of these these sorts of products. I, I like the bar scene. Mm-hmm. I, um, I particularly like gin. I, I guess going back to the wanderer, there's a bit of a literary element in the wanderer, and I, I sort of like... I like my books and I like, uh, you know, the stories of uh, the old days and, you know, love my Hemingway and yeah, yeah. you read all those those <laughs> books and they drive you to drink essentially just of all the adventures that those guys have. as far back as Edgar Allan Poe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So all that's always been appealing to me and, and um, I was reading this this great book by Frank Morehouse called Martini a Memoir. Mm-hmm. And Frank Morehouse, he's an Australian writer who's been on the scene for, for many, many years and this Martin, a memoir, I'm not sure when it came out, um, probably in the early 2000s, but he's basically been on the lecture circuit um, talking about the history and the, you know, the the law and the legend of, of Martinis, and he's put a lot of this into this book and interspersed it with tales from his colourful life. And um, there's so much to learn in this book about Martinis, and it was just delightful and a, a real journey and exploration and... Um, there's a line in there that goes something along the line of every time it's served, the martini um, represents the um, journey towards a, a, you know, a perfect ideal drink. Mm-hmm. And that sort of phrase, that's not exactly quoted, but it just struck a deep chord within me because, you know, that's essentially what a winemaker's trying to do. Sure. You're on that journey every vintage to make the unattainable yeah. perfect drink. And, and that's that's the whole interest in making wines that every year it's different and there's a challenge and you know that perfection is unattainable but it just it's an exciting challenge that quest yeah it's and it's fun it's it's generally gives you a lot of energy to to go after it and and so that sort of made me think about gin in 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 a new light and i mean that's obviously talking about martinis but it just occurred to me that here's something that i could have a crack with and and so very much i um you know i live in collingwood and commute out to the yarra valley every day but I, i uh I started doing some trials with some um, just, you know, soaking soaking um, spirits with um, with different ingredients. And then I, I, I um, got my hands on a little five-litre copper pot still and started doing some distillation trials in my apartment in Collingwood. Mm. And my flatmate at the time started complaining of headaches and having weird dreams. And, I, you know, it was quite, quite an amusing little passage of time. But at the end of it all, I started doing some blending trials with these different um components that i distilled and i came up with this blend that i thought geez you know for little um home job that's not too bad at all and on the basis of that i thought i'm going to get licensed and do this probably so um forgive my ignorance um can you just take me basically through the process of making a gin yes absolutely so i mean gin is made from a um a neutral spirit and whether it be neutral grain spirit or um or other and i actually use other i use a, a neutral grape spirit Okay. So, which is sourced from South Australia. So it's, and the reason I do that is I, I have familiar, I'm familiar with the, the um, guys or the, the, the um, company that makes that, that spirit mm-hmm. um, based in the Barossa Valley from my former life. And uh, is that, is that made from grape juice or grape skins? Grape or? skins, but it okay. goes through a column still. So it's, it's very, very pure. It goes through, it's a, a pretty highly engineered process, that, sure. uh, which, and at the end comes 96 sin alcohol but it's a totally neutral spirit. totally okay. totally neutral and, and all gin the world over like there's there aren't too many producers of gin in the world that make their own spirit uh-huh. and so you know all, all the big guys are, are buying or sourcing neutral 
spirit. Okay. But it, you know, it depends on what this their readily most readily available source of carbohydrate is, whether it be grain or you know. Um, and so then I take that nice. My approach has been to steep my ingredients separately. I've got a little um, hand beaten copper pot alambic still from Portugal that I sure. imported. Uh-huh. Um, it's a bain marie style copper pot still, which means that there's a outer layer of this a double wall in the still, and that double wall is filled with water. Okay. And then I apply a, a gas burner, a heat to the bottom of that, so that heats the water, which then transmits the heat to the interior of the um, still, which is supposedly a, a more gentle and constant heat. Um, and copper being a great, um, it doesn't insulate at all, so it just passes the heat straight through the energy straight through, mm-hmm. and. <clears throat> So then I'll, if I'm doing distillation, I'll do like my, my juniper berries, whack in some alcohol, add a quantity of juniper berries, distill them together, and out will come a juniper essence. Right. Essentially, alcohol okay. tasting of juniper. Okay. It's extraordinary. At the outset, and I've, I really got my still at the start of 2012, and just before harvest, I wasn't able to use it during harvest because I was busy making wine, but ever since then, ever since 2012, I've been distilling most Saturdays. Um, and the first, you know, six months was just doing experiments, trying to figure out, you know, the first time I started still, am I going to blow myself up? Cause I don't really know <laughs> what I'm doing, you know? And then that progressed along to, well, how do I get the most out of this bat? And I just did trials to start with, with juniper and coriander because I knew they're the key components of, uh, gin. Uh-huh. In most cases, juniper, um, berries and coriander seed. And so I just did trials, you know, do I do a 24 hour skin maceration of the juniper berries like, you know, beef eater 24, for example, do I do a 12 hour, do I do less? Do I suspend, as some people talk about, my botanicals in a basket above the alcohol and let the vapor go through the um, berries rather than having them sitting in the alcohol itself mm-hmm. to um, to have a sort of a more mild, lightly flavored spirit? Obviously, alcohol at 96% is, is a, and I add a little bit of water as well, so I don't end up burning the bottom of the, the still. Mm-hmm. But it's a pretty strong um, solvent, obviously, so it extracts a lot of flavor and and um, color out of out of those berries while they're being macerated, mm-hmm. and the maceration is not me actively stirring them or anything; it's just just sitting there. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of trials, and and um, that that went on for some months because you know every day I did a different flavor, but that was on a Saturday, so you know just there's only sort of so many days of distillation that you can do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I would have trialed up to 20 botanicals to try and figure out what was going to work. And then being a, a, a winemaker, I thought rather than, you know, whacking all these different botanicals in the still together, isn't it, wouldn't it be better to understand the component, you know, what each botanical has to give separately and then as a winemaker back, bend, back blend them on the, on the bench. Like blending parcels of, of oh, grapes. Yeah, of grapes. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, wow. So then I so I'll say, you know, take 20% juniper berries, you know, 10% coriander seed and, yeah. you know, how does, and then try and figure out how they all work together or, or, and change around the proportions and, and put the blend together that way. And did you blend it prohibition style in a giant bathtub? <laughs> I would have loved to have, but no, no, <laughs> sadly not. But um, there's always scope for that. Uh, and essentially, and when, when did you first start um, releasing it? So it was released in July of 2012. Far out. And, uh, you know, it's, it's been, for me, it's just another one of these stories where I think, um, you know, to create something, to take something from zero to, from an idea to, you know, a product is, is really very exciting and mm-hmm. very rewarding. And it's the same with my wine. It's just, uh, I'm sure my folks have had the same feeling with, with Gembrook. You haven't been able to achieve that from a, a plain, you know, cow paddock to a, a wine that's been on the shelves for, you know, 15, 20 years. And uh, if you found it's uh, helped quite a bit that there is, um, has been increasing uh, interest in gin, particularly high quality gin and demand for it. Um, particularly, uh, let's not, uh, let's not beat around the bush with the Negroni craze. Yeah, look, it's, it's curious. And, you know, sometimes I wonder, um, you know, am I in another one of these Moscato phases where the year that I start making Moscato, there's no other people making Moscato. And then, you know, three years later, the whole market's completely saturated. Mm. Now the, the, distilled spirits industry being the way that it is it's a lot it's very tightly regulated and sure. the record keeping is on the on you know very onerous mm-hmm. and very exact and i spend you know every for every hour of distillation i do i probably do an hour of record keeping okay so you know and the excise that one pays on on the product that you sell is very very high it's mm-hmm. you know 50 percent or more in my case of, of the, the value of the product Wow. So there's a lot of reasons why, you know, there won't be a flood of new arrivals, but 
it's very exciting what's going on in the in the spirit um yeah. australian spirit trade at the moment it's, it's fantastic and um i think you might have uh, brought a, a bottle along to let me have a look at it yes um i brought in the sample today fantastic i mean it's a really it's it's quite an eye-catching bottle and label it is and i mean there's no like that package took literally over a year to, to come together Gee, your brother-in-law did a good job with that one. <laughs> he did he didn't he wasn't employed this time around but um actually i've kept it in the family and um my my cousin um claire selby uh formerly of studio periscope put the, that package together and she's an absolute talent wow fantastic. and um she i said to her the other day every time the phone rings for me your heart probably sinks because you know I've just got all these very hard requests to make of her typically. And, um, yeah, but th there's a story in, in the label that I spent a, a year looking for the bottle and, you know, it was going down one track and then it actually happened when I was in Spain where these funny things happened where I was looking through a catalog of glass at the, at my friend's winery. And I spied this bottle that, you know, in the same catalog in Australia that I looked up online, they didn't have the bottle. Oh wow. And so I said, weird. yeah, what's going on with this bottle? And I said, Oh yeah, it's, you know, it's available. So, there it was. I scored the bottle, which you know wasn't in the Australian catalogs, and so I've I've been the first person to bring this bottle into into Australia. It's from France. It's a pretty expensive bottle. Uh -huh. The cork is similar enough from Spain. It's from a guy whose factory I've visited twice now, and he's um, it's a family business, and he um, it's good sound, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and he uh, produces these high end corks and goes to the nth degree to you know make very good quality corks and mm -mm. and um i met him again this spanish winery and um and so he makes these directly for me and i import them directly mm -hmm. uh, and that once we had the bottle which took that long to find the label was reasonably easy but you know trying to trying to say you know the label with this sort of product means a lot so it can it's almost the most important thing what people see first and what's going to eye catch so that was pretty important a few keys on the label. So it's the MGC, the Melbourne Gin Company, um, and it's uh, handcrafted, batch distilled, and non-chill filtered. Yep. So the chill filtering is a bit of a story therein, as I pour a glass for you, that, um, that I uh, discovered, as you do when you put a bottle of spirits in the freezer. Wow, I can smell it just from here. It's, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's pretty aromatic. It's it's quite a, a distance away from me on the table, but um, just as pouring it, I mean, it's now it's even more. It's just sort of really, you know, we're using um, sort of, I guess, the look a little bit like the real O series glasses, um, right. stemless ones. Um, yeah, you, you really do get those botanicals just sort of still leaping out of the glass. Yeah, well, there's there's eleven botanicals all up, um, and and there's four from overseas. And that aromatic character, because you talked previously about you know the the fact that the Jembrook Hill wines um, are quite known for their um, purity of aromatics. So that kind of was, was that necessary, or was that purely accidental? That it's a bit accidental, uh, with the exception that I included in in the um, botanicals in this ginger um, grapefruit from the grapefruit tree at Jembrook. Oh really? It's the grapefruit peel, because um, it has a kind of a, that citrusy. That's right. Um, and Jembrook wines, be it this Pinot, the Savio, or the Chardonnay, actually have a grapefruit element running through them. So you know there there might be that common thread, but the other citrus elements are um, organic orange, navel orange, picked in winter, and um, and honey lemon myrtle from a farm in Western Australia. It's it's quite concentrated. Yeah, it's pretty dense. Um, you know, it, 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 it's, it has a, that, that density, as you say, but it's still not kind of heavy and brooding. It's still, it still has um, quite a lot of finesse to it. It's very long. Mm. It, um, it really does linger on the palate quite beautifully. I was, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, I think with, with the way, because it's uh, these little single batch distillations of each botanical, I've, I've really got a lot of flavor out of, of that still. So that's, that made the blending very important. And, there's a lot of essential oils in my gin. It's quite textural and a bit unctuous or oily mm -hmm. without being cloying and almost an apparent sweetness without being sweet, actually sweet. Yeah. It's kind of got like a, a citrus oil mm. character to it, which is interesting. And so what I was, I was sort of intimating before that when it's um, chilled or put in a freezer or very cold, it will louche slightly. And that's a French word to describe the oils, which will actually at very cold temperature become insoluble. And those form this slight sheen in in the glass so mm -hmm. i could have taken that out by chill filtering my gin but then i just spent months you know perfecting this flavor profile which would have been a real shame to then 
filter out. So I think, um, you know, that's the way that it's going to be. And do you have a particular sort of serving suggestion or the, do you think that there, there is a better way to express the, the MGC? Look, I'm, in, what I've learned in going about and, and um, showing this product to, you know, guys in the bar trade is, is that, you know, I'm not a barman. Mm-hmm. I, I really wouldn't even profess to that's that area of expertise. I love my martinis. And I mm-hmm. think it's a really good martini mm-hmm. because of that sort of, that sort of oily character, which reminds me for, for uh, the listener a little bit like a, um, a Hendrix in that sort of sense, which is quite easy drinking. Sure. It doesn't have the, um, the heat or, you know, some gins or spirits you drink and you get this hotness and you know, you're drinking a hot, high alcohol. Sure. And even if the alcohol's not that high, um, but in this case, I don't think you get that from from this spirit, which mm. I, I don't could tell you particularly why. It's just the way it's been put together. But in a martini, it's, it's lovely. I think a, a gin and tonic, you know, it works well. But you know, most gins work well in a gin and tonic because it really is a, a, a gin and tonic is a mixed drink sure. that tastes mainly of tonic and a bit of gin. That's sort of hard to quantify a little bit. I think you know, there's a you know, we love Negronis. Obviously, I think it does very well, executes very well in Negroni. They're, they're the three ways that I drink. Sure, sure. Gin mainly, and then, but I'm not pre- prescriptive about it at all because there's a lot okay. of people who know a lot more about it than me, and everyone likes their gin tonic differently. And I think people can discover that for themselves, and you know, and that's the that's the, the beauty of it all because they they can. Now, for, obviously, for those uh, listeners who are in Melbourne, you are going to find it almost everywhere. Um, certainly, you're in all the top um, bars, wine bars. Uh, and restaurants um if they can't they can just they should ask for it yeah absolutely <laughs> well you're only in collingwood not far That's away right, exactly um have you sort of uh, been selling it uh interstate or internationally well, I, have, or? I have a little bit uh no international as well there's there's been some um i've had a few emails from people in england and the states okay you know where can they get it is it in is it brought over there yet and, and um that hasn't happened and from europe as well do you find that you know, overseas maybe they have a slightly more dynamic kind of cocktail scene? Oh, I couldn't comment on that. I think I think the, the, I think the, the cocktail scene is going nuts worldwide, and I think mm-hmm. it's openly um, acknowledged that series TV series like Mad Men have had a massive impact on people's <laughs> interest in you know in cocktails and martinis, sure. and and that's you know and, and there's a lot old of fashioned that kind of thing. yeah TV series that's that's fantastic you know as far as I'm concerned and. The gin scene, you know, there's some amazing producers of gin in Australia, Mm-mm. new guys, um, and there's also, that's happening all over the world, you know, mm. in the States, in England, there's new brands that, you know, don't sit a lot of day. So there'd probably be a lot of competition to export it to those countries, I think. Sure. Um, I'm focusing really on Australia. I've only made one trip to, to New South Wales so far, and the response I got was fantastic. Mm-hmm. So um, I really need to go and spend more time up there because, you know, that's as big a market as Melbourne, and there's no... Um, sort of patriarchal sort of view that the Melbourne Gin Company should only be in, in Melbourne. I think, you know, yeah, they just like, everyone got just gets really excited by a, a sure. quality product. Sure. And it's like the wine. I prefer the product to speak for itself rather than me do the talking. But uh, in, in terms of people wanting to find, um, buy it or find it in yes. a local market, what's the best way for them to get in contact or to, to, to stay in contact with you? The best, well, there's, I mean, I've, I have a website, so that's www.melbournegincompany.com, uh-huh. and and it's a very simple, just a face page. Yeah. But then you can contact me, and I I'll, I'm pretty responsive. Um, but that also the website I believe also has some um, the Twitter handle. There's a Twitter handle, and you can get onto the Facebook too from there. I think. And, yeah. And I've been doing quite a lot of Facebook work, uh, and that list there's some lists of um, suppliers on the Facebook site, and some great photos and. Uh-huh. and things like that so i'm you know engaging that respect if there's other ways that i should be engaging with people let me know because you know <laughs> I'm, I'm i'm all ears it's the same with the wine as well like they can find the wanderer on facebook and, and i've got a great um website um wanderwines.com as well yeah well there's always the classic address of www.google.com <laughs> exactly yeah that's right so we're pretty easy to find i think but um, no, you, you will. I, I do encourage everyone to seek out all of the products, obviously, that um, Andrew's involved with that we've talked about today um, because they really are um, some exceptional expressions of, uh, of what they are. Um, and I certainly appreciate you uh, appearing on the, uh, the show today, Andrew. Well, thanks for having me, James. It's been a lot of fun. <laughs>
Um, thanks uh, as always guys uh, for listening uh, obviously you can follow myself on Twitter at Intrepid Wino or you can follow the podcast uh, at The Vincast um, please come and visit me at uh, intrepidwino.com uh, and all of um, the episodes are there um, hit me up on iTunes obviously and now Stitcher as well uh, if you can um, please rate and comment because that would be fantastic to hear some feedback from you guys uh, but otherwise until next time bye bye